Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Don't forget to claim your CE after listening. Today, uh, we are going to do an inpatient talk for once and actually an ICU talk. And so a, a tip of the hat to one of my bosses, Matt Trump, who's actually been a uh, guest star on this podcast in the past, who had, who had uh, suggested this uh, paper to me. Um, and I thought it was really good and certainly worth, worth discussing. Um, and the paper has to do with DVT prophylaxis, uh, particularly in ICU patients. And if there's one uh, recommendation, I can say I've probably made more times than anything else in 30 years of being a pharmacist is recommending either starting or stopping chemical prophylaxis on hospital inpatients, particularly ICU patients. Why ICU patients? Because of all the patients in the hospital, they seem to have the highest risk for venous thromboembolism in-house. And there's probably a number of reasons for that. First and foremost, ICU patients just tend to be very, very sick. And so uh, we know that any inflammatory reaction, such as sepsis or anything along those lines, will increase risk of VTE. We know that on the whole, they're not getting up and moving around a lot. They, they tend to be flat on their backs in, in a hospital bed, either ventilated or super sick. So that, of course, increases the risk as well. And they also have many other comorbidities, CHF, um, lung disease, um, but even obesity, certainly in the last 20 years, all of which increases the risk of developing DVT and MPE. So it's, you know, of all the, all the places in the hospital, I think we really do try to pay attention in the ICU to patients who might be at risk for DVT or PE. And being an older pharmacist, I've certainly seen the pendulum swung back and forth, I think, on this in the last, you know, 25, 30 years. When I came out of school, you know, it, we had to really twist providers' arms to, to, to start heparin or, or noxaparin, which was pretty new back then for the for prophylaxis of DVT. Um, I think there was just a lot of, uh, of fear about bleeding, a lot of fear about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia um, that just really caused people to basically say, nah, in most cases, I don't really want to do it. And then more and more studies came out suggesting that hospital inpatients yeah, are at risk for venous thromboembolism. Even after they get discharged from the hospital, their 30-day risk of VTE and MP is, is significantly higher than the baseline population. And so, um, you know, I think as, as people start to understand that risk, and frankly, as, as organizations such as the Joint Commission became requiring assessing patients for, for venous thromboembolism prophylaxis, more and more hospitals started to do one of two things. They either came up with a protocol that had nursing or pharmacy kind of assess patients for venous thromboembolism risk, and then if they reached a certain threshold to start them on it. And there's a number of, of these uh, scores systems out there, the Padua scoring system, the improved scoring system, there's, there's a number of them out there. And the other thing that, that happened, uh, a lot of hospitals kind of foregoed all that, and they basically just made it so that uh, DVT prophylaxis was largely an opt-out instead of an opt-in sort of thing. So if you were, got started, if you were admitted to the hospital and the uh, admission order set, it basically had DVT prophylaxis all set for, there for you. And if you basically did not want the patient on DVT prophylaxis, you uncheck the box or, or, or basically in, in some other way said, no, I don't want my patient on DVT prophylaxis. And so we went from kind of an opt out to an opt in uh, situation. And certainly in my world, in my hospital, I saw appropriate use of DVT prophylaxis just skyrocket in those patients. And you can argue some inappropriate use that, that DVT prophylaxis was used in patients with very little risk. Uh, you know, the 21 year old who's admitted with uh, DKA to the ICU patient is not obese, has, you know, really has no other risk factors in those patients is probably unnecessary to put them on DVT prophylaxis. And so, you know, again, pendulum's kind of swinging back and forth and back and forth in recent years. Um, I've, I've seen kind of a, you know, hey, do we really need to put everybody on DVT prophylaxis sort of thing and kind of, you know, swinging back the other way. 
my bias honestly has been against many of these scoring systems again not because they have not been well validated but i think they have but i think they make the assessment of dbt or pe risk much too cookbook um you know it, there, there's really no way for a single scoring system to assess all the potential risk factors for, for venous thromboembolism you know again each of these scoring systems has some stuff but many of them don't have for example inflammatory bowel disease which we now know is a strong risk factor for uh, a DBT or PE. Many of them don't have chronic liver disease because we're always afraid that chronic liver disease is going to make patients bleed when in fact the research actually shows the patients with stable cirrhosis are at an increased risk of venous thromboembolism compared to controls. And so, you know, I think trying to hammer all this down into, into a simple scoring system is just going to be a challenge. So I've never been a big fan of them, though I know, again, they're commonly used in hospitals across the country and that's fine. I mean, again, I, I'm not saying that they're, it's wrong to do that, but my way of using DVT prophylaxis has always kind of been an internal assessment of, you know, gee, okay, well, they're 300 pounds, they're 70 years old, they're here with pneumonia, they have a history of heart failure. Yeah, all those things added up is definitely going to increase the risk. And, you know, whereas I have, again, a 21-year-old who's normal size, who's in with, with DKA probably doesn't have a risk. So in any event, I, you know, I, I think that, that there's kind of a back and forth. And, and while I'm not a huge fan of scoring systems for VTE risk, I can certainly see why a lot of, a lot of places do it. So in the ICU in particular, this is, this is a really important subject, as I've mentioned before. And I would say in most places, in, if, if the patient doesn't have a risk for bleeding or, or, or things along those lines, we do tend to put BTE chemical prophylaxis on most patients. I note chemical prophylaxis because, you know, the, the alternative, of course, is, is sequential compression devices of some sort. There's a, several of them out there that basically just compress the lower legs and theoretically decrease the risk of BTE by increasing blood flow. It's worth noting that the data on uh, sequential compression devices is pretty poor. And in fact, the one study I remember reading years ago suggested that you have to have SEDs on for 20 out of 24 hours a day to show a benefit. And I don't know about for the other inpatient practitioners listening to me, um, if you're like me, we walk into the patient's room and the uh, SED you know, wraps are basically lying in a pile on the floor because we take them off all the time because the patient's moving or the patient wants to get up and go to the bathroom or, or whatever. And uh, I think between that and the fact that I think, you know, head to head studies while not being done, retrospective studies have suggested that chemical prophylaxis is superior. That's something else that I'm not a big fan of is SCDs. And I usually don't recommend them unless I really have no other choice in patients. So now what would be one of the reasons I might recommend SCDs in patients would be a patient with a low platelet count, right? So, you know, we've known for a long period of time that of course, as your platelets decrease, it increases the risk of bleeding um, in patients who aren't already on heparin or heparinoid. And so the question has always been when somebody's on Lovenox or heparin, or when they, a patient comes into the hospital with a low platelet count, at what point do you feel comfortable starting or what did you feel like you should stop DVT prophylaxis? Now, again, in a patient on heparin or heparinoid for a long period of time, of course, if the patient meets the right clinical risk factors, you should assess them for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and treat them appropriately. But I'm talking less about that and, and, and more about, gee, I'm afraid that the patient's platelets are getting too low and they're increased risk of bleeding. And, you know, the problem that, that I think compounds all this is what's your definition of thrombocytopenia? In my hospital, we get the red L, it means low in patients who have a play that's only less than 150,000. And I'm sure there's some place that suggests that is considered low compared to the baseline population. But as we know, uh, that really, those patients really are at increased risk of significant bleeding. 
And it's it's often thought that really, you know, platelet counts in the 10 to 20 range are really what puts you at very, very high risk of spontaneous bleed. And so the question has always been, you know, at what point do you feel comfortable, you know, in someone who's on chemical prophylaxis going, oh, boy, their platelets are too low, I'd better stop it. Or the opposite, you know, they come in with really low platelets and you're like, eh, their plates are pretty low. I better not start, you know, VTE prophylaxis in them. And so that, that's a question that I face with nearly every day. And I suspect most practitioners do as well. And everybody has their own cutoff, you know, mine's less than hundred, mine's less than 70, mine's less than 50, mine's less than 30. And we really don't have any evidence suggesting, you know, you know, is there actual, you know, evidence suggesting at what cut point do you see, see a significant increased risk of bleed in patients who are put on the and prophylaxis who have low platelets. So the answer to that question, maybe, has come in a brand new letter to the editor. That's a study that it was published recently in the ATS journal, American Thoracic Society journal. I don't usually do letters to the editor or, you know, brief communications or things along those lines, just because they're not as rigorously reviewed as, you know, uh, main articles, main peer-reviewed articles. Now, that's not to say I haven't published my fair share of them over the years, you know, so I'm not saying that they're not important, but it is worth worth kind of a, a note up front that on the whole, you know, brief communications that end up as letters to the editor uh, for a major journal tend to not be as rigorously reviewed. So I just want to say that up front, just so we're all, all on this. And this retrospective study kind of uh, took a look at DVT prophylaxis and severe thrombocytopenia. And they note in, in the letter that the authors do that, you know, again, this relationship between the degree of thrombocytopenia, incidence of VTE, uh, patients who are on prophylaxis and bleeding has not really been fully characterized. And so I do commend the authors of this article to try and answer a question that, again, I've certainly dealt with many times in, in my career. This was a group from Boston um, who looked at the premier healthcare database. As many of you know, the premier healthcare database is one of the largest uh, healthcare databases, uh, commercial healthcare databases in the United States. These are people who take, you know, complete uh, health records from, you know, thousands and thousands of patients uh, in, in hospitals all over the country. And then investigators use that information to try and elucidate correlations um, in, in studies that they're doing. And so you have to pay a fee. I've never personally used the premier healthcare database because I don't think I can afford the fee, <laughs> but but uh, some people can, and that allows them to do, you know, some large database type studies. The Premier database is actually pretty complete. It, it, compl it records things like vital signs, labs, charges, claims data uh, for all these patients. And so in this study, they included adults admitted to an ICU on hospital day one who had thrombocytopenia. So patients who had an initial clinical count of less than 150,000, which again is, is considered low in most hospitals. They excluded patients receiving oral anticoagulants, patients uh, who were getting major surgery on day one, patients with, a, with bleeding or on admission. So again, someone who came with a GI bleed, we obviously wouldn't put on DVT prophylaxis, that was chemical prophylaxis. And, and then any indications for full anticoagulation uh, using the ICD-10 code. So for example, the patient had incident atrial fibrillation, uh, that would be an indication in most cases for full anticoagulation, and they would not include them in the study. Anyone who had an acute myocardial infarction, because many times we put those patients on full dose anticoagulation, cardiac arrhythmias, uh, hepatitis thrombocytopenia or valvular disease. So I, I think they did a good job trying to eliminate uh, uh, confounders and patients who really probably should either be on full dose anticoagulation or at high risk for bleeding right out of the get-go. Their exposure of interest that they looked at the premier database for was early VTE prophylaxis. So they, they, they deduced that by looking at charges either for unfractionated heparin, low molecular weight heparin, such as an oxaparin, 
refined Apirinux, which in my world, we don't use a lot, but in other places they do, and that the charge was for hospital day one and who had an initial platelet count. And again, that count had to be below 150,000. Uh, outcomes were uh, the need for transfusion on day two or three of hospital admission, and they used a timestamp ICD procedure to look for that. Or, and, and as well, they looked at diagnosis of new VTE that was not present on admission, and again, used ICD codes for that. They then developed a analysis where they tried to account for model covariables. So again, they, they developed a regression analysis that looked for things like age, gender, hospital teaching status, so whether the hospital is a teaching hospital or not, hospital size, this and census, the region that the hospital is in, baseline hemoglobin level, uh, INR greater than two. They did calculate the Charleston comorbidity score, which if, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's, it's basically uh, an Apache two for hospital floor patients. It basically measures the depth of uh, morbidity in patients. So how sick they are really based by the number of morbidities they have. And as well as organ uh, dysfunctions present on admission, uh, these were ICU patients. So they also used invasive mechanical ventilation and dialysis as co-founders co that they, they wanted to adjust for on hospital day one. The other things they looked for was placement of an IVC filter, an inferior vena cava filter on hospital day one. Uh, we could do an entire Game Changers episode, and we maybe we will sometime in the near future, on IVC filters and their general uselessness and a lack of data showing that they're really beneficial and, and the harm is associated with them, but that we'll, we'll leave that for another day. And then other uh, di admission diagnoses that may alter the decision to initiate uh, VT prophylaxis on day one, such as cancer and connective tissue disease as well. They then characterized practice patterns of early VTE prophylaxis initiation across platelet counts, again, using this multivariable logistic regression model with platelets modeled separately as a linear term. So then what they did was they plotted the probability of early VTE prophylaxis initiation by platelet count by holding all the variables we talked about as means or reference value. So in other words, they looked at what were the odds that someone got started on VT prophylaxis if their plates were 150 or 130 or 100 or 70 or 50, all the way, all the way down the pike, right? After they did that, uh, they examined the association between the exposures of early VT prophylaxis and platelet counts. So in other words, what was the, the cross uh, uh, term between their early initiation of VTE prophylaxis and their platelet count looking for, again, the outcome which were the need for a packed red blood cell, so they had some sort of acute bleed, or the development of, of venous thromboembolism prophylaxis. So trying to look at that intersection be, be, between those two, basically. They looked for, of course, uh, for uh, clinical significance, which they defined at a 0.05 level, and they wanted to quantify how the association between VT prophylaxis and outcomes changes based on the platelet count. They uh, did multiple analysis to make sure they kind of got this, you know, similar answers between them. So that that's basically what they tried to set up the study to do. So in other words, a database study looking at platelets who had uh, patients who had nominal thrombocytopenia and looking at those who got started on VTE prophylaxis at a platelet level below 150,000 and trying to find a cut point at which uh, the risk for new bleed occurred or the risk for VTE development occurred. They identified about 140,000 patients admitted to the ICU with a platelet count on day one, so a pretty large number. Uh, after they excluded all the patients that we've talked about, they had about 40,000 patients who met full inclusion criteria. 
of those uh, 12,048 patients received ED prophylaxis upon hospital admission. And again, these were ICU patients. So that number does seem a little low to me, um, but that, you know, that, that is kind of what they had. So what were these patients like? What were their characteristics? What were the results associated with the intersection between DVT prophylaxis and bleeding or development of ETE? We will uh, talk about the answers that after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Hi, this is Jen Moulton, founder of CE Impact. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We're growing and the more followers and ratings we have, the more great content we can provide. We appreciate your support to help you connect your learning to practice. So we are talking about a small study, again, a letter to the editor uh, in the American Thoracic Society Journal at, uh, looking at the intersection between DVT prophylaxis in ICU patients and low platelets to see if there is an increased risk of bleeding or an increased development of VTE. Again, about 40,000 patients in this database study were examined. They uh, were, uh, a mean age was 61. About 40% of them were female. As far as uh, teaching status, about half the patients uh, were hospitals that, that were teaching hospitals. And there was actually a pretty nice spread of uh, different hospital bed sizes. But by far, the majority of these patients were in kind of big, big hospitals. So 500 plus beds, kind of what I used to call battleship sized hospitals. Uh, 43% of patients uh, were in, in the no VTE prophylaxis arm, were in, in beds with uh, hospitals of beds of 500 beds or more, and VTE prophylaxis about 38%. So again, the vast, vast majority of these patients were in large hospitals. And if I had to guess, probably academic medical centers as well. Geographic spread uh, was fairly even, though it seemed about uh, the majority of these patients were in the South. About 60% of both arms were, were patients in the South. Mean hemoglobin was about 12, so actually fairly normal for most of my patients. And uh, mean a platelet count was somewhere between 109 and 123. So again, by the strict definition of uh, thrombocytopenia, they both met that. But again, were they at increased risk of bleeding is, is, is the big question. Charleston comorbidity score, what was two, so they both about had the same number of comorbidities. Um, the majority of them had renal issues, also had, had respiratory issues and cardiovascular issues. Though again, they didn't go in, into real detail in, in, in the letter on what kind. And about 20% of patients were mechanically ventilated on hospital day one. So looking at that number, you know, it, it, you know I would say that that number seems kind of low to me uh, in my uh, ICU. I'd say we have more than 20% of patients uh, admitted with mechanical ventilation, but, uh, but those numbers are terribly low or terribly different than what I'd see. About th uh, three to 6% of patients were on dialysis and day one as well. About a third of them or a quarter of them had alcohol use disorder and a big one, about 20% of patients met the criteria for obesity. So what did they find as far as results were concerned? Well, we took a look at the adjusted probability of BT prophylaxis actually uh, increased as platelet count increased from zero to 100 and then above 100, the probability of early BT prophylaxis remained stable. So basically what they generally found was that patients who had really low platelets, providers were afraid to start DVT prophylaxis or just didn't start them for whatever reason until they hit the cut point of 100 and then above 100, the uh, probability of early BT prophylaxis remained stable. So that, that's actually not all that surprising to me. In the model for patients who got a red blood cell transfusion, they did find a significant interaction between platelet count and early VTE prophylaxis. And this was statistically significant with the estimate uh, effect direction suggested that the risk of blood transfusion was higher 
when BT prophylaxis was started at a lower platelet count. When they dug deep into the data, they found the cut point for that was a platelet count of 50. So when all things were held equal, the biggest interaction between BT prophylaxis and, and bleed in patients with low platelet count was at platelet counts below 50. And so that, you know, it, it gives us, I think, a, a fairly good a number to kind of hang our hat on, suggesting that if we're worried about bleeding, the risk of bleed goes up when platelet counts drop below 50. And there was actually not a lot of, of increase in bleeding in patients who had platelets above 50. And in fact, the risk between 50 and 100 and 100 and above was, was fairly similar to each other. So uh, that, that was good. That's, you know, that's good to see. So again, you know, it looks like risk of bleed is relatively stable until you get a, a platelet count of 50, and then it does seem to rise. They did note as also as well as, as the second outcome that the risk of new VTE in patients with thrombocytopenia was low across all platelet counts. So they did not find an interaction between the development of new VTE and PE who patient, who were in these patients who had, again, by definition, thrombocytopenia, though not very low platelets, uh, who were started on, on VTE prophylaxis. And so, um, or were not started on VTE prophylaxis. And so it seems that the risk of bleed cut point is about 50, whereas they did not find a statistically significant cut point that would increase the risk of, of venous thrombolysis. So the authors note that this is probably one of the few studies that has been done. And they, they note that generally in hospitals, there's some, there's some uncertainty about when to start or stop DBT prophylaxis in patients whose platelet counts are, are below 100 because of fear of the risk of bleeding. They found that that was not necessary and that, in fact, the risk of bleeding and clot was fairly similar until you reach the cut point of 50, at which the risk of bleeding started to go up significantly. So they note that, that there, again, there's very little data that really tries to answer this question in their study, maybe actually one of the very first ones to ever do that. They note that really the only other big studies that are out was a, a multinational observational study that that identified a platelet counts less than 50 as a risk factor for in-hospital bleeding. But in this study, they didn't look at the effects of VT prophylaxis. They just looked at low platelets and the risk of bleeding and found, not surprisingly, the patients with low platelets or increased risk of bleed. There was a small case series in patients who were uh, had reported no major bleeding events with BT prophylaxis in patients with platelet counts as low as one, which I got to tell you, I would never have the guts to do. So uh, somewhere somebody had the guts to do that. I commend their fortitude, I suppose. Um, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure that uh, I would be laughed out of the room should I suggest that to, to, to my physician. So, uh, you know, but again, I think the point of that, the case series is that, oh no, if DBT prophylaxis is safe in all people, obviously you're, it's going to be very difficult to, to gain any sort of of real response to that, or, or how do we take that information? So really, this is probably the largest uh, study ever done. And of course, we'll probably never do a, a randomized controlled trial looking at this. So, uh, you know, prospect or retrospective database uh, studies are probably the best thing we're ever going to have. And so, you know, I think that I think we can kind of use this and certainly I'm going to use this in, in my practice, really saying, okay, it's really at 50 that we really need to start worrying about bleeding in patients who are put on DBT prophylaxis and, and really consider stopping that in those patients. Now, of course, it isn't just a, a, a absolute, we got to stop it. You do have to look at the patient. You have to look at risk versus benefit. Um, if this is a patient who, for example, 
you know, recently had a, a PE three months ago and um, is, is, has other risk factors for, for PE, uh, you may want to consider, you know, cautiously watching the patient. So, you know, we want to keep those things in mind. The other thing they note, which was surprising and it was surprising to me too, was that again, in this 40,000 uh, patient cohort that uh, only 30% of patients were on DBT prophylaxis. Now, again, a lot of those patients, it makes sense because they had low, you know, low platelets below 50,000, but um, they, they noted that again, even between 50 and 100,000, it was about 30%. So I think there is kind of a, a, this fear among, among clinicians that, that, you know, gee, when your plate, when it says L on the platelet uh, number, I really should consider, you know, should I continue or stop DBT prophylaxis? And so uh, since there was no real increase in BTE or bleeding, I think it's, it's reasonable again to do with this risk benefit analysis, but to consider continuing or starting BTE prophylaxis in patients really until their platelet count drops below 50. They know a number of limitations that their data may not reflect national chemo prophylaxis usage. They, uh, you know, couldn't reliably ascertain if the, if the dose was actually given or if the dose was correct for renal insufficiency. So it was, it was unclear if, if BTE prophylaxis doses that reduced were reduced at lower platelet counts. They did see, uh, note that they used blood transfusion as a, as a surrogate marker for bleeding. I think in a big database study, that's really all they're going to be able to do. Um, it's going to be difficult to use such things like ICD procedures, such as new bleeding or stuff, because a lot of times that code does not make it into the chart. They note, though, that that actually has been shown in other database studies to be a high, have a high sensitivity and specificity for bleeding. So basically, they came away from the study suggesting, as I've said before, that 50 is kind of the cut point. And 50 has always kind of been my cut point anyway. I've talked to people where 70 tends to be their cut point at, at stopping or starting DBT prophylaxis. So I, I think, you know, 50 sounds good to me, basically. And I think it, it is certainly reasonable that if you are, if you have a patient who's on BT prophylaxis and uh, their platelet count drops to 50 or below, I think, you know, again, not automatically stopping it, but, but really taking a step back and saying, okay, what's the risk versus benefit? If the overall risk is nominal or, or kind of normal in, in, in a patient, for example, who doesn't have a thrombophilia or not a recent incidence of, of venous thromboembolism, I think it's probably entirely reasonable to hold that. Um, and you can switch to SCDs if you want, or you can just, you know, cross your fingers and, and make sure things go well until the platelets cap platelet count recovers. Again, I, I want to note that patients who might meet the clinical definition for HIT do need to be investigated uh, promptly and have a 4T score done on them and, and then make the determination whether a laboratory assessment for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia makes sense. So that's, that, that's something I, I do want to make clear because that's, that's something that we sometimes get confused about as well. So bottom line, uh, ICU patients, you know, I, again, I'm, I think we should be more or as aggressive at, at using BTE prophylaxis in appropriate patients because of the risk. But if you are rounding on patients and you note that their platelets are dropping below 50 um, or they have an acute bleed, uh, you probably want to consider holding therapy in most patients in that situation. And so that's it for this week of uh, Game Changers. Time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. That's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, join us at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week for Game Changers Clinical Conversations.